You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, conditions apply. See website for details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. The stage was stripped of adornments. Maggie promised that her act would be as well. Finally. The New York Times described the platform as bare and somber, but the crowd was anything but. They filled the room with noise, all of them hissing and shouting before Maggie could even begin. The press was wild with excitement. They filled the New York Academy of Music in October of 1888, when Maggie appeared on stage, just as she had so many times since her childhood in Rochester. A front-page illustrated story in that morning's issue of the New York World ensured the crowd would pack the hall. After an opening act that highlighted the tricks used to debunk other mediums, Maggie arrived on stage. Still dark-haired in her 50s, she now needed glasses to see the words she'd written for herself. Maggie held the lenses up to her eyes and read off a declaration. Everything she had done for spiritualism over the course of her life was a falsehood. She had already published a letter in the New York Herald that called spiritualism a curse and a covering for heartless persons and the vilest miscreants, people who used it to cloak their evil doings, as she said. Now she was making the same pronouncements in person. But it wasn't just statements, of course. Like so many other rooms before, the hall became filled with knocking sounds. They started around Maggie's feet, faintly. Then they rose along the walls and scattered upward, where they rang out from the ceiling, thundering throughout the room. Here's author Nancy Stewart. And she then hikes up her skirts and shows how she makes these sounds with her feet, with her toes. And by now, there's a National Association of Spiritualists and so on, and they're just outraged. What follows is an enormous controversy that goes on for a long time. A committee of doctors stepped on stage and solemnly confirmed what she told them. Maggie made the sounds with her feet. It was all a hoax, a fraud, and it was everything they wanted. 
an exorcism of Mrs. Satan herself and everything she stood for. The newspapers crowed. Doubters and cynics roared their approval from the rooftops. This was spiritualism defeated. This was the perpetrators of the 19th century's most infamous fraud finally dragged into the light. Around the Fox family, acid rumors had always circulated. That Leah, a single mom, saw an opportunity to take a simple gag her younger siblings were pulling on their parents and turn it into something much larger, a chance to enchant and enthrall audiences. And yes, it was also her chance to do more than be a part-time piano teacher for the daughters of aspiring middle-class families. But did Leah, like Cornelius Vanderbilt throughout his own life, see an opportunity and seize it with a vengeance? She was, like P.T. Barnum, just someone who knew how to profit from spectacle when it crossed her path. For viewers of Maggie's very public confession, at least, that was the takeaway. But it wasn't so simple. Here is historian Anne Browdy. Fraud is a very fraught subject in spiritualism because there are no question that there have been fraudulent mediums who perpetrated deception on the public and profited by it, and that there have been gullible people who were embarrassed and disserviced by fraudulent mediums. Now, that is also true of many professions, law and medicine, for example. (laughs) Not to mention politics provides opportunities for deception and doublespeak, and misrepresentation. Does that mean that all participants in it have those motives and are dishonest? Spiritualist believers weren't swayed by Maggie's performance. As we've noticed throughout this season of Unobscured, the Fox sisters were often put forward as the mothers of the movement— but they were far from the only mediums at work in their world. And even if their own stage shows were faked, those hoaxes didn't invalidate centuries of spiritual visions and experiences that had breathed life into the movement long before the Fox sisters were even on the scene. And when it came to Kate and Maggie, spiritualists pointed to Maggie's history of alcoholism. She was already discredited, they said. There was nothing she could say now, no lie she could fabricate that could undo a lifetime of miracles. She was simply pandering to the doubters in order to stir up controversy, they said, and to put herself in the headlines once again. In fact, Leah's husband, Daniel Underhill, soon went to the newspapers to make it known that Maggie had betrayed spiritualism out of spite, just to put a knife in her sister's back. After all, Maggie and Leah had been at odds for decades. And three years earlier, Leah at this point in her 70s, had published her own book, The Missing Link in Spiritualism. In a lot of ways, Maggie's onstage confession was an axe that hacked at the root of Leah's claims. But could that attack banish everything, including Andrew Jackson Davis's harmonial philosophy, Cora's trance lectures, Emma's histories, and Sojourner Truth's lifetime of work and love and power? New Yorkers had certainly witnessed a disaster, yes. But like so many spectacles from the world of spiritualism, it seemed that, ultimately, what observers took away from it all looked very much like what they brought in. 
belief. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. Cora took the stage. She'd been doing it her whole life, after all. It was 1898, and she had arrived at the National American Women's Suffrage Convention with an official title from an official group. She was now the head of the fraternal delegation to the convention from the National Spiritualist Association, and she was there to celebrate the 50th anniversary of 1848. For the women's suffrage movement, it marked 50 years since meeting at Seneca Falls, New York, and the Declaration of Sentiments that had placed a stake in the ground for American women's rights and equality. There was still so much work to be done before those rights would be recognized, but much had changed in those 50 years. Women had already cast legal ballots in Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, and Colorado, but it would still be decades before the 19th Amendment would be passed into law in 1920, giving women across the nation the right to vote. One courageous and outrageous woman had even run for presidency, however unconventional her approach might have been. For Cora, of course, 1898 also marked 50 years since the fateful events around Rochester. That decade that followed Maggie's confession of fraud in New York had done little to overthrow Cora's worldview or her place among spiritualists. In fact, the 1880s and 1890s were a time when spiritualism— and Cora's role within it, took on a more permanent form. She had settled in Chicago right around the time when Victoria Woodhull was cutting ties and leaving for England with a pocket full of Vanderbilt money. Victoria's reputation as Mrs. Satan had threatened Cora's livelihood, as it did for spiritualist mediums across the nation. But it didn't stop Cora from marrying into a widely respected Chicago family and taking a paid position as the shepherd of the city's first society of spiritualists. In 1889, Cora and other Chicago spiritualists formed the Morris Pratt Institute in Wisconsin, built with the proceeds of a mining company, a company that had been guided to valuable mineral deposits by mediums and their helpful spirits. The institute would become a temple and school for spiritualists, a place where teachers and students could meet together and study the works of spiritualist theology that mediums like Andrew Jackson Davis, Emma Britton, and even Cora herself had delivered to the world. Three years later, in 1892, Nettie Colburn died. She had been the most prominent medium to ever claim that she'd had the ear of Abraham Lincoln. When she was laid to rest, it was Cora who took the pulpit to preside over her funeral. The following year, 1893, saw an astonishing event come to Chicago. Along with the World's Columbian Exhibition, something new arrived. The World Parliament of Religions, a two-week summit on faith. But while the spiritualists weren't part of the larger gathering, they were certainly there in spirit. Here's Anne Browdy once again. In 1893, we have the World's Columbian Exhibition, where we have Americans exposed to many of the religions of Asia for the first time, and we have swamis and other Asian religious leaders recruited to come to the United States and teach Americans about their faiths. And so we have the whole movement of theosophy, 
which is attempting attempting to combine the wisdom of the East and make it accessible to Westerners. And spiritualism moves in and out of all of these developments because spiritualism is always available. You can always talk to the dead. And in any movement, whether you think that wisdom is going to come from Egypt or from Tibet or from South America or from Australia, you can always make contact with a spirit from one of those places who can give you wisdom that draws on those traditions and on esoteric practices from another part of the world. In fact, spiritualists saw that the reason they didn't share the stage with their fellow believers was that they still had no organization, and that was the precise agenda of their meeting, to form a permanent national association. They believed it was time for the best interest of spiritualists to have a more unified home, and one that was more identifiable, than a simple network of newspapers passed between spirit circles in Washington, Boston, and Chicago. By the end of their meeting, the National Spiritualists Association was born. Now, they said, outside societies could contact them at their headquarters with requests for information. Or, you know, with invitations to important meetings of the world's religions. Wink, wink. The irony of spiritualists boxing themselves in wasn't lost on those at the meeting, or on Cora herself. She started her welcome address to the convention by noting that, in the past, Asking spiritualists to join an organization was like talking to someone who had escaped from prison about going back again. All things connected to human life, she once said, have been organized to death. Cora was probably not the only one to remember just how many spiritualists had left their churches to join the ranks of seance-goers. That had certainly been true for the Posts, who had left their Quaker organization behind. It was true of Henri and his Cirque Harmonique, and for Catholics everywhere who wrestled against church authority. And it was a strong memory for any spiritualist who had been present for the ruckus at the Hartford Bible Convention 40 years earlier, although those numbers were shrinking every day. Spiritualism had always threatened the priests, politicians, and profiteers who benefited from the status quo. It had given spiritual and moral authority to people who'd been stripped of their rights, pushed to the margins, and burdened with work, while others reaped the rewards. The last thing spiritualists wanted to do, even in the 1890s, was to give up on their labors and return to a world of the strong crushing the weak. But in the coming decades, Cora and the Chicago spiritualists weren't the only ones who saw a spiritualist future finally taking shape. It just wasn't the future they'd expected. Death was not something to be afraid of. For Henri and the Cirque Harmonique, death was just what Andrew Jackson Davis taught it to be, a door into a new and more perfect existence. It was the chance to leave a corrupt world behind and to climb into a higher, more sublime, more magnificent country. For as long as their seance circles had gathered together, the Cirque Harmonique had held on to the belief that by talking with the spirits, they could learn all about that more magnificent country— and then they could make this world more like it. In his role as a city official and a school board member, Henri had seen the chance to do just that. But as time went on, it became clear just how fierce the opposition was. Here is historian Emily Clark. Violence, like the Mechanics Institute riot, was not alone. 
1874, you have the Battle of Liberty Place, during which the White League, a white supremacist organization, takes control of New Orleans and is like cutting telegraph wires and so that messages can't get out. They slaughter the, at that point, integrated police, kill some people who are just walking by. There's a black carpenter who's killed with his own hatchet by white leaguers who are just like marauding through the city. During that, the spirits of Mechanics Institute riot martyrs appear to the Sir Carmenique and encourage them to keep the faith that their rights will be maintained. Henri did keep the faith, but he watched pieces of his world fall apart around him. Black students were kicked out of New Orleans schools. Not long after, he was forced off the school board as well. Efforts to rebuild the South in the image of a different world had been abandoned by the political powers of the federal government. This is a place that is increasingly becoming more and more dangerous to hold to ideas of equality. It seems like actually starting in late 1875, most of the seance records for the last two years are mainly just Henri. And the following years were tough. One December, Henri's home was burned to the ground. His seance records were saved, including the handwritten messages from countless spirits. But much of what was precious to Henri was lost to the flames. And slowly, the members of the circle died or moved on. I think about him sometimes, just sitting by himself at a table, a table that used to be full of vibrant conversation about the potential of what the spirit spoke of. And now it's just him. I'm sure the seance records offered some comfort, but in the end, it's just him and the records end in November of 1877 as Reconstruction itself comes to a close. Even as the radical fire burned low in some spiritualist circles, the fight for equality continued. The Great Railroad Strike of 1877 inspired working-class people across the country Nine years later, 40,000 workers in Chicago fought with police in another nationwide push for an eight-hour workday. In one street battle, police killed four strikers. The following day, a bomb was thrown into a crowd of police as they marched toward protesters. Eight of the officers were killed, and dozens more were injured. In response, the police opened fire on the crowd and each other. Eight of the city's anarchist organizers were scooped up in the following police raids. And that's when Cora stepped in, taking up the mantle that Victoria had laid aside. Believing in the cause of the striking workers, Cora was shocked when she heard that the arrested anarchists were going to be hanged on circumstantial evidence. She organized an amnesty committee and then set out for Springfield, Illinois to confront the governor and ask him to support the eight-hour workday. A massive crowd of people from across the state had gathered at the statehouse, pleading for the men to be saved. One reporter noted that Cora's lecture was so moving that it left the group in tears. More than any other, it was this act that wrote Cora's name into Chicago's history. In the end, though, the governor met Cora's pleas the same way New York met Victoria. She was turned away. Four of the men were hanged, and Cora returned home in mourning, but also certain of her righteous cause. She later wrote that the power of money and of human selfishness are doomed, whether in the individual or in society, or in corporations or in governments, or in crowns or in kingdoms. Perhaps it would just take longer than the spirits had led her to believe. 
Makora wasn't the only one undaunted by setbacks, because there were spiritualists across the country who'd begun to revive that dream of a model community that had fostered spiritualist beliefs way back in the 1840s. All of them were looking for a place to finally call home. It was a camp, but only in name. In fact, the thriving spiritualist community in western New York had showed signs of being a permanent settlement from its earliest years. They would eventually rename their town Lilydale. They built their own post office, hotel, store, and library. They even took on a bold new project. They relocated the house where the Fox family had first been shocked by the sounds of spirit rappings. And once it was safely at home in Lilydale, the structure turned their community into the destination for spiritualist pilgrimages in the Northeast. Down in Florida, friends of the Lilydale community followed spirit voices to a home of their own on the Atlantic coast. Previous meetings in Florida had brought together as many as 1,000 spiritualists. So in 1894, the president of the National Spiritualist Association joined the founders of Lilydale and many others to open camp meetings in Casadega, Florida. As so many spiritualists had done before, they put out a call for universal brotherhood, welcoming people of any race or class who were interested in spiritualism. But when white northern leaders welcomed their new black neighbors to lectures at Casadega, they violated several Jim Crow laws, highlighting the spirit of liberty that had visited so many seance tables in previous decades. Here is historian Kathy Gutierrez. The Casadega community, the Lilydale community, these folks understood perhaps the single most important thing about spiritualism, and that is, is the vanguard of multiculturalism. I completely think that spiritualism's primary contribution is to ethics, and it is to the dismantling of a, a duality of heaven and hell, and to the relegating of all of your neighbors who are not exactly like you to hell. There were other people who didn't actively believe in a hell, the Unitarians, the Universalists, right? Everyone was going, you know, to heaven. That's you know, what Universalism is. But as a, a mainstream, loud, splashy movement, spiritualism really was a driving force behind uh, nascent multiculturalism. And I think that that is its lasting contribution. Even today, the Casadega community continues to be a home for spiritualist practice. Like Lilydale in New York, it remains an enduring testament to the power of the harmonial philosophy and the deep belief of the generations who had lived and loved its teachings. But it wasn't just on the East Coast that spiritualists made more permanent homes. In California, spiritualists settled along the Pacific and formed settlements like Harmony Grove, a community that's still meeting in a spot first marked by a simple 10-foot platform and a hitching post. In Santa Barbara County, spiritualists formed a colony they called Summerland. It was their own slice of heaven, and it became a haven for spiritualists all throughout the West, even more so when they drilled for oil off the coast. And yes, you heard that right. By pumping crude oil up from the seafloor in 1896, the Summerland Project became the nation's first offshore oil well. It was one more sign, for those still certain of their spirits guiding them at least, that they were entering a new age of prosperity. 
If only those spirits had been more foresighted. But if there were some spiritualists who held true to those original goals of the mid-19th century, there were others who had veered away. They were looking for new revelations in a different direction. And even as those new offshoots of spiritualism grew, they watched the influence of the old spiritualism fade and change. If you've been listening to the stories of figures like Sojourner Truth, Cora, and the Fox Sisters, and you've been wondering what happened to spiritualism, well, the answer might lie closer than we think. Here's historian Molly McGarry. It had found its way to theosophy, which does grow during that time. Spiritualists are still meeting in camp meetings in the, you know, in, in the 1880s and beyond. They're still doing their work. I think what's true is because the newspapers become less important and the community becomes more diverse, and because many historians look at the Northeast and don't look at the West quite as much, that they've missed a lot of the rebuilding that goes on in the 1880s and the kind of experiments that are happening outside the Northeast or the central New York and that, that area that had birthed the original movement. So I think that it's less that spiritualism declines. I mean, that would be one way to see it. But it just becomes more difficult to see for all sorts of reasons. And it moves, it moves into different formations, but it doesn't die. Yes, theosophy was one of the new religious movements that drew strength from its spiritualist roots, but also from its spiritualist founders. And among the earliest visionaries of theosophy was Henry Steele Alcott, that veteran investigator of frauds who turned his mind to spiritualism in the 1870s. And he was joined by Emma Britton, whose theatrical performances were surpassed in their power by her histories of spiritualism itself. Here's Kathy Gutierrez once again. Well, Emma was at the initial 1872 party in New York that founded the Theosophical Society. And what the Theosophical Society and and, uh, Madame Blavatsky in, in particular proposed is that Spiritualism was, this is my phrasing obviously, but too exoteric, right? That actual occult work requires initiation, it requires adepts, and it requires secrecy. So if you could talk to the dead, you were approaching something important, but you weren't there yet. So they actually set out to create a much more esoteric, as in actively secret and requiring gradations of initiation that sort of spun off of some of the primary principles of spiritualism. And it was also unlike spiritualism, which, as we've discussed, is very optimistic in so many ways. Theosophy is paranoid. (laughs) It's a massive conspiracy theory. So it has a different trajectory, right? It is not progressive or kind or healing at the core of it. It's much more about self-transformation. It's much more about the secrecy and inner sanctum. In the 1870s, Mary Baker Eddy's Christian science joined theosophy as another religious belief that blossomed in the world that spiritualism had made. But it wasn't just new religious movements that found their origin in spiritualism. It was science, too, especially the science of the mind. 
In uh, the 1880s, when you really see the rise of neurology and psychology as medical disciplines, then they start edging into what has traditionally been religion's purview. So when you have uh, women speaking in multiple voices, then traditionally, okay, are you a saint? Are you a witch? Or are you mad? And Nancy Stewart agrees. So it's a gateway, if you will, into what we know today as modern psychology and, and understandings about psychiatric states, and trance states and illnesses and, and so on. I think that's all pretty familiar to people today, but then was brand new investigation. In many ways, it's fair to say that spiritualism was the bridge from our past to our present. Even today, if we know where to look, we can find its traces all around us. If we listen closely, if we know how to interpret the quiet echoes, we can sense its eerie presence in the background of our everyday life, like the sounds of knocking on a distant door. Unobscuring the past doesn't always mean delivering a simple story. Sometimes it means stripping away the simple parts of our past that we think we know in order to explore the complexities of what really happened. Sometimes that means we come into a chapter of history thinking we have all the answers and then learning that the story we were told barely even gets the big picture right, let alone the smaller details. And honestly, it sometimes means re-examining a familiar moment in time and noticing the ways that crucial parts of its history were written out of the story, the embarrassing, the uncanny, the parts that look foolish when we're using today's lenses to filter out the uncomfortable parts of our past. But when we look back objectively, with help from scholars and historians, like those who have joined us this season, we can start to see with a bit more clarity. Spiritualist people, along with their ideas and hopes and fears, were embedded all throughout life in 19th century America. Religion, science, finance, technology, and politics were all braided together with the echo of voices from beyond the grave. Rapid changes in the world gave rise to modern spiritualism, and then those spiritualists turned around and changed the world some more. By listening to and following those spirit voices, spiritualists show just how much the age-old questions still capture our hearts and minds, even as a rush of new ideas and new devices turn our world into something unfamiliar all over again. Here's historian Anne Browdy. We tend to think of seances as a parlor game. And certainly they could become that, and they did become that, a popular entertainment. But the first seances, I don't think were games at all. I think they show us the deep, deep hunger to communicate with the spirits of the dead, the deep hunger to be reconnected with loved ones that we have lost and the deep hunger for knowledge of the divine, for knowledge of what will happen after we die. Think how long it took to get a spirit message by passing your hands over the alphabet until you heard raps at a single letter, and then you had to repeat that process maybe 50 or 100 times to get a brief spirit message. And meanwhile, you're kind of hoping that you have a human medium who will be an effective vehicle for communication. And to my mind, as a historian, 
I feel completely confident in saying that the majority of mediums were absolutely sincere in their belief that they were channeling communications from the spirits of the dead. Spiritualism earned many critics throughout the 1800s. It suffered through predators and fell victim to profit-seeking opportunists, just like so many other realms of American life. But I can't help but think back to Amy Post and her mixture of ardent hope and sincere belief in the 1850s, because it was that mixture that led her to spend those long hours at the seance table, taking down messages from the spirit world. And all the criticism that can land at spiritualism's doorstep, well, it wasn't the death knell people assumed it would be. In many ways, we're still living in a world that spiritualism made. Here are some final thoughts from Molly McGarry. I think it's very easy to sort of look back at a past and see irrationality and superstition and a kind of secularization narrative in which we, you know, are are no longer part of this this kind of, you know, community community of believers or dupes or the credulous ones. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles. Most people know their sun sign, if not their rising sign. People don't know their blood type and they know, you know, they know their astrology. This hasn't gone away. I mean, what can be seen as a kind of spurious consolation or after-dinner pastime speaks to a real need for people, for contact, for connection. And it's easy to see as superstition or as a child's kid's parlor game, but it was really powerful. It was amazing to me the way that the imagination, the possibility that spiritualists could cross from this world to the next, allow them to collapse distinctions between worlds, between bodies, between genders, between races in some cases, that that cosmology allowed for a remaking of things in this world. And that material connection, I think, remains very powerful. There is no death. That's what one of the best-known British mediums called her memoir. She borrowed the title from American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. But the idea of messages traveling across fathomless depths had always defined spiritualism's power. Besides, spiritualists had been saying it for decades. For spiritualists, there is no death wasn't just a platitude. It was truth. The memoir was published in the 1890s, and it reads like the personal recollections that we've discussed throughout this season. The medium tells stories of encountering the spirits of dead children and lost friends. And by doing so, she offered hope that even when our loved ones pass away, they will always be there. We can always talk to them because they're always near. After all, there is no death. But the First World War was coming. It would deliver death to European families on an unbelievable scale. And all that loss created a home for spiritualism in Britain that deserves to have its own story told. Here's historian John Busher. There was a big revival of spiritualism in the post-World War I period. And in some sense, it's still a part of what lay at the heart of spiritualism. It's still in continuity with what we see around us all the time in our own culture. Belief in psychic powers, belief in channeled texts that give some higher revelation. A lot of that interest is now labeled New Age which is a term that was, as far as I know, was invented in its original sense, or in the sense that we know it now in the spiritualist community. You know, a lot of that's still with us today. 
Just like the thousands of American mediums who haven't entered our story this season, the long and complex legacy of spiritualism in Britain has only gotten a few brief mentions. But the same can be said about any of the other nations where spiritualists traveled and taught and heard their questions answered in the dim light of a seance. Places like Europe, Brazil, Puerto Rico, and Australia. In the early 1920s, though, spiritualism may have found its most ardent new student in the person of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who added his name to the list of the curious, and then the converted. Here's Nancy Stewart. You know, people have laughed about this. People like Arthur Conan Doyle. Here we are, the most rational detective writer. He's a spiritualist. Houdini started out believing in it, and then he got to debunk it as a magician. You know, it just kind of goes on. This leads later, much later, into investigations by people like uh, William McDougall, a Harvard psychology professor, who was the chairman at Duke, and his disciple, Dr. Joseph Banks Ryan, who look into ESP. In the first decades of the new century, spiritualism was revived and responded to new catastrophes and to offer answers to the questions of a new century with its new wars, new technologies, and new social formations. It survived countless tests and investigations. It even outlived its most powerful publication, The Banner of Light, which finally ceased printing in 1907. And it survived the decline of its most hopeful early projects, as well as the scandals of its most prominent mediums. And there are so many more stories left to be told. Because for spiritualism, well, there is no death. She was the oldest, and of the many mediums we followed this season, it's easy to see how Sojourner Truth forged a path for others to follow with her courage. Here's Margaret Washington to share a final word on her life. To me, it's almost like a no-brainer. And spiritualism, how is that different from spirituality, except that people want to get in touch with loved ones who have gone on. And in African spirituality, that is taken as a given, that your loved ones, not only do they not leave, they protect you, they surround you, so they're part of you. So spiritualism, for her, was an extension of that. Sojourner finally reconnected with those loved ones in 1883 when her traveling feet finally found rest. Yes, she was the oldest, but there were others who had walked most of that road with her. They might not have had the same destination all the way, but Sojourner and the Fox sisters were travel companions nonetheless, and they were ambassadors for spiritualism just like she was, in their own ways. Even after Maggie's 1888 confession, the show went on, Because just one year later, she changed her mind and tried to take back whatever she had thrown to the wind. But time got away from her, and in 1890, Leah would pass away to the other side, her sisterly rift unhealed. Here's Nancy Stewart with the end of their story. Long story short, it's it's kind of sad, but it leaves a lot of questions about her. Towards the end of her life, Katie's dying and does die of alcoholism. Ultimately, Maggie does die, 1892, and there are all kinds of mysterious knocks and sounds. A person who is her nurse, who is not a spiritualist, cannot explain them at the time of her death. 
At the very end, Maggie seemed to be challenging the world to explain the power that had flowed through her. She and Kate barely outlived their first interpreter, their friend and mentor, Amy Post, who had been more than certain than anyone else about how to explain that power. In 1889, though, she passed away into the Summerlands. The last surviving member of the Cirque Harmonique left New Orleans in 1913 and moved with his children to Jamaica. His letters to relatives in Chicago show that in both places, the deep belief in the power of the spirits lived on. He died in 1924, and his son-in-law would later donate the seance record books of the Cirque Harmonique to the library at the University of New Orleans. Here's Emily Clark. So the Cirque Harmonique, over the course of their roughly 20 years of practice, fill something like 35 or 37 books with messages. If you stack all of the seance record books up, it reaches around my ribcage. So we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of messages from the world beyond this one. Those records are a testament to the faith and conviction of the Afro-Creole community in New Orleans who poured their heart and soul into a new vision of the future. When the cover closed on their last record book, though, it was far from the end. New Orleans spiritual churches rose in their wake, led by a generation of new black leaders who would be the mothers of a vibrant religion in the 20th century. In Chicago, Cora finally laid her head to rest in 1923. She had traveled, taught, organized, and lectured on the world of the spirits for more than half a century. Her legacy still lives on in countless ways, too, and the efforts she made to lay a foundation for the spiritualists of the future held true. The Morris Pratt Institute and the National Spiritualist Association of Churches are still active today. Yes, some things do pass away, but others stand the test of time, especially when they're rooted in something eternal. Hope. Victoria Woodhull found a new home in England. She found a new husband, too, and a new life. When the British Museum opened a display that explored the Beecher-Tilton scandal that had destroyed Victoria's place in New York, her husband John took the museum to court for libel. Victoria was ready to be Mrs. Martin now. No more scandal. No more battles. No more smears. But even if you believe there is no death for the soul... The body can't survive on belief alone. In 1897, John Martin had been sick. He wanted to see if island air would help him heal, so he set out to spend the winter in the Canary Islands, off the northwest coast of Africa. But when he did, he left Victoria back home in England. She had also been ill, maybe even too sick to travel. When he was on his way out, John wrote to his father that Victoria was very much depressed. Just like Elisha Kane traveling away from Maggie Fox into the frozen north, John left. But anxiety gnawed at him, and he wrote Victoria often during his winter stay. In one of his last letters, he said he wondered if it would ever reach her. I am out of the world, he wrote. There is no telegraph, no newspapers. A flurry of lonely telegrams from Victoria were finally answered in March when he sent a note saying, I will sail tonight for the most remote of all the islands and be cut off from the world for 10 days. 
He promised that he would come home to her afterwards because he wasn't getting any better. But he was cut off from the world more severely than he had imagined. John died far from home on March 20th of 1898. His doctors sent Victoria a telegram with the devastating news. But if she still believed that messages crossing an enormous gulf could be a comfort, there is no record of it. On his death, Victoria inherited John's wealth, including shares in his bank and his family lands. And then she retreated. One note that she wrote to herself explores the devastation that she clearly felt. Your temperament is of an active type, she wrote. Maybe she was thinking back to her younger years, crisscrossing America in a carriage with James Blood, or going toe-to-toe with New York City's hypocritical ministers and corrupt tycoons. But I feel a sad, tired feeling, she continued. A lonesomeness. So she retreated to the Tudor-style mansion that had been empty for ten years. From there, she had a view over the Severn Valley and the Cotswolds. She even started driving throughout the countryside to keep her mind off the dark moments of her past. And by all accounts, she fell in love with cars. Here's Mary Gabriel once again. John Martin, her husband, had a family property in Gloucestershire in the west of England, and she literally would move there and live in this grand house up on a hill and wage, for the rest of her life, wage very small battles for education, for driving, for women's rights to drive, of all things. She got involved in minor scuffles with local authorities. She was still that fighter, still Victoria Woodhull, but her days of trying to change Basically, America and the world were well past her. She went on to become the first woman to take driving tours through London's Hyde Park. Along with her daughter, she drove all throughout England and France. But she wasn't done forming societies, either. Her Ladies Automobile Club attracted others from her new social set, including the Duchess of Sutherland. Their first parade of cars drove right past Buckingham Palace. After the First World War, though, Victoria finally laid those activities to rest. Her sister Tenny had also married into English money, but she continued to travel and speak. She even went back to America to confront Theodore Roosevelt about women's suffrage. But Victoria had begun to shut herself off from the world and its troubles. One of her gardeners remembered that once, when he was weeding the path outside her mansion, he heard a strange tapping sound ring out. He looked up to see Victoria standing inside, knocking on the glass of the window. She shouted at him through the window pane, saying, Those weeds had the courage to grow in the path of man, and you murdered them. Maybe it was a hint at the place she felt she had begun to inhabit in the world, somewhere between the world and its untamed edges. She had been uncontrollable in the face of men who wanted to clear the land always coming back, always stirring up life where others only saw death. When death finally came for Victoria in 1927, she was 88 years old. Her ashes were carried into the North Atlantic and scattered into the chasm of the ocean. Here's Mary Gabriel once again. The war she was waging then, she could be waging today, basically almost using the same language, which is really both sad and kind of interesting. I think that she's a very pertinent figure for us to study at this moment. And that period of history is a fascinating one for us to look at because of the changes that were occurring. And the fact that where society was in 1848, no one could have predicted where it would have been, even in 1870. 
One last story. When Victoria had sued the British Museum back in the 1890s, she had taken the stand to give testimony. Naturally, the museum's lawyers peppered her with questions. Was her spiritualist guardian Demosthenes, they asked, just as Theodore Tilton had written? I do not think I shall tell you who he is or what he is, she replied. Then they asked her, would it be true that she took a prominent part in all the movements, social and political, that were going on in America? Yes, she told them. I had. Would she say, they asked, that her life was a career of what would be called a very remarkable kind? It was, she said, a very laborious career. They then asked if she had at one time been a clairvoyant. Not at one time, she answered. All the time. And still are, they asked. Victoria nodded. And still am. Today's episode was the final leg of this season's exploration of the spiritualist movement, bringing our journey to an end. If you've enjoyed the results of our team's hard work, your written reviews and star ratings would be very welcome on Apple Podcasts. Your kind words go a long way toward helping newcomers tap that subscribe button, and all of that helps the show grow. It's been an honor to be your guide over the past few weeks, and I look forward to our next tour through the darker corners of history. But we're not quite done with the story of Season 2. Starting on January 8th, we'll be releasing all eight of our incredible historian interviews in full. These are powerful conversations with the leading scholars in the world of spiritualism, and the insight and details they bring to the topic are perfect for those who want more. Just leave your podcast app subscribed to this show, and those interview episodes will arrive automatically every week, as will news about Season 3. In fact, if you stick around after this brief sponsor break, I'll give you a taste of what's to come. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days, like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? 
especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Next time on Unobscured. Spirit communication is ancient. It's probably as old as mankind. It goes way back into the Greek philosophers, many Asian religions, Native Americans. They have pet seances. The idea that your beloved animals continue with you through eternity. Personally, I can think of no stronger argument for belief in spiritualism. Benjamin Franklin was a favorite medium for the communication of scientific information. And the notion that spirit mediums could communicate scientific information was understood as another kind of evidence of spirit presence. They didn't just focus on machines to make contact between the living and the dead, but they also put their minds at work to, to try to get inspiration, spirit help, to invent new machines that would help everybody they take up 19th century Victorian notions of the virtues of white female womanhood that allow certain kinds of power for women and girls to speak in public, but also a range of masculinities for men who might have sat outside the strictures or boundaries of what was possible for Victorian men. They believed that humanity writ large was also on a ladder of progress. And figures like John Brown and Toussaint Louverture, they help push humanity along the ladder of progress. People from all levels of society used religion as kind of an umbrella to either hide under, to seek solace from, or to use as a mask. Sojourner, when she wasn't on the platform, she liked to sit at the foot of the platform. That way, she could interject things. She could say... Can I say something? <laughs> Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.
Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.